IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of IB Talk, the insurance industry's global podcast. On our last program, you may remember we were joined by a US native talking to us from London in the form of Jam's Rebecca Ratliff. Well, today, that truly global flavor continues as we welcome another US native, but now talking to us from what is firmly established as his home in Australia. And not only is Australia his home, but he happens to be the president of one of the country's leading specialist insurers. That man is Mark Lingerfelter, president of Australasia for Berkshire Hathaway Specialty Insurance. Uh, Mark, welcome to IB Talk. Paul, thanks. And uh, nice to have the opportunity to join you today. So Mark, let's start at the top. It's such an interesting story. Um, Tell us how you got your start in the insurance industry and how you managed to navigate your way to Australia. Well, it was uh, was a while ago, Paul, but I I did go to school in the US and uh, was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to join Chubb's training program. Uh, as an underwriter, uh, right off of uh, right off of campus, and uh, I started my career uh, in a very very small corner of the insurance industry in Dallas, Texas. Um, so that w- that was really how it started. So, what exactly was that first role? What was the the first thing that you did? Well, I joined as uh, as an underwriting trainee, and as was typical, you would work you know, for, for a short period, relatively short period. Um, and then you would be given an opportunity, which seems funny today, but almost every couple of years, every two to three years, if things were going okay, you were offered another role and, you know, with the expectation that you'd kind of move your, your home and move from one state to the other. And so I started in Dallas and ended up uh, working in uh, Oklahoma and then Philadelphia um, ultimately taking on, you know, slightly bigger, bigger roles and responsibilities. Um, but really, you know, kind of out of nowhere, um, had an opportunity to, to move to Singapore, um, from Pennsylvania, which was really when my international career, um, with absolutely no pre-planning got started. Well, yeah, you were with, uh, QBE in Singapore, I believe. And, and tell us a little bit about, I mean, I want to talk to you later about the perhaps the differences with the Australian culture to the US culture, but tell us about the, the differences in, in the Asian culture, because I imagine that was that was wildly different. Yeah. Um, the uh, Asia was such a challenge because um, it was you know, you, you, you move over from the U.S. We moved over from the U.S. based in Singapore, you know, which was and remains, you know, such a great market. Um, very sophisticated brokers, uh, tough, competitive, but at least, you know, you felt that you were on relatively familiar ground. But uh, back in the day, I was actually with Chubb in terms of my first move to Asia. And you're trying to build, you know, it's effectively a nascent business. Um, small, small scale, you know, less than $100 million in premium at the time, but you're stepping into markets that are so diverse, you know, from uh, Thailand, uh, small premium, you know, English is not the main um, language of most of the team that you're working with, trying to train them in underwriting while you're setting a portfolio strategy uh, to Japan, where you've got a whole different set of cultural challenges 
to Korea, uh, you know, to Hong Kong, which, uh, you know, both with Chubb and, and later with QBE was, you know, again, a very large, sophisticated um, market um, with a lot of the same dynamics and challenges that you would face, you know, when you were in Philadelphia or New York. So um, what was most challenging um, during both of my assignments in Asia, first with Chubb and then QBE, is this incredible range. And it's not one culture. Um, you're trying to bring a, a, a set of skills uh, to, to kind of have some principles that are non-negotiable that you bring into each market in terms of how you run the business, but very much adopt you know, the, the way you're engaging with the team um, and, and adopting to the realities of the market. And, you know, over my career that involved, um, you know, trying to work with a board of directors and a team in India, um, which, which was hyper competitive and super hard to, to kind of plot a, a path to an underwriting profit, um, operations in the Pacific, which generally were small, but had a lot of, uh, you know, cat challenges to, you know, developing Asia, whether it was Thailand or Malaysia or Vietnam, um, or the markets of Indonesia, the Philippines, it really was, um, you know, it was, it was, it was just a ton of diversity and, uh, you know, re real challenges every day, right? Not, not easy markets to, uh, to, to earn a profit in. So yeah, probably baptism by fire is the best way to summarize, uh, that, that, that period. Yeah, no, I, I imagine this. You know, the, it's 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 easy for us to perhaps you know outside Asia to sort of see it as a collective, but in, in reality, it's you know it, it's so diverse. Um, I mean, it's, it's it's a huge continent. But tell us tell us a little bit about you know you on on the personal side of things. I mean, how what was the biggest perhaps cultural difference that you had to deal with in 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 your life on a personal level outside of work? Well, you know, I have to tell you, uh, Asia in some sense was was easier because as you relocate your family to Singapore, um, everybody understood you, uh, you were going through uh, a move from the east coast of the U.S. to to Asia. There was a you know number of uh, expatriates that were in exactly the same boat. So in many respects, uh, you know, I think my wife and I look back on that, and you know, you're making kind of lifelong friendships. And uh, people are people are very much going through the same um, uh, process and same steps. Um, you know, generally young families, and uh, it was actually you know qu quite a terrific time. Um, what you know can be subtly you know more challenging is actually moving into markets that you know are are in so many ways so much more aligned with the experience in the U.S. But you know, at the same hand, there is no network. So when we moved to Australia, um, you know, family still in the U.S., um, you, you, you lose a lot of your support network and you're, you know, entering your kids in local school and they're coming home because they've, uh, you know, thought they spelled Harbor correct on the spelling test, but they got it wrong. And, uh, you know, they're trying to, they're trying to convert from American English to, uh, to Aussie English. And, uh, you know, they, they might love NFL football and, you know, there's different codes over here. So it actually probably was, uh, was a bit trickier, um, when we moved from Singapore to Australia, you know, largely because the, the cultures, although they, they might seem from the outside to be very similar and, and for sure, there's a lot of common, uh, themes, uh, it actually could be a little bit more challenging on the family, but, you know, that said, when you, when you, when you've, 
kind of gotten over those initial hurdles, obviously. Uh, in, in very short order, my family decided that uh, they'd be quite happy if we didn't ever return to the U.S. And it was really my uh, my family and, and, and kids that uh, were, were probably the first converts and, and kind of expressed a real desire to uh, to stay in Australia, which, you know, we've been fortunate enough to do. Yeah, I think it's something that you know perhaps gets overlooked when somebody moves for work is is the whole process that's involved behind the scenes, if you want, because you do have to move your family. There's so much involved with that. I mean, is this something that you know that was kind of put on the plate for you that you saw this opportunity and you know you jumped at it personally, or was this something that was kind of presented to you as we want you to go here? One hundred percent. It was it was it was unexpected and probably uh, a good example of the value of sometimes uh, leaning in uh, to opportunities that uh, you know would be hard. I never really would have mapped this out ever, um, but um, was lucky enough to you know to have a family that was willing to support it. And so when the opportunity came up, um, we you know we we decided collectively we were going to go for it and. Um, you know, kind of never, never looked back. Have been, you know, very, very glad we did. Um, but yeah, it was. It, Paul, I have to be brutally honest. It was, it was completely unexpected, and it was, uh, um, yeah. So it was, it was not something that had been planned for a long, a long period of time. And and tell us as well about sort of your career progression i suppose because like you said you know you started out at a you know in a, in a small role in dallas and now you're the president of, of berkshire hathaway specialty insurance across australasia so how have you been able to progress into into such a senior role and perhaps i don't know maybe you have some tips for others who who might be looking to sort of emulate your success yeah, you know, maybe the first thing is, uh, you know, I think kind of the appeal of of Berkshire Hathaway specialty is, you know, firstly, we, do, we don't really um, look at our business kind of in a traditional command and control structure. Um, it, it, it really uh, is, is less of a vertical organization. So I, while I appreciate the comment, the, you know, the reality is, you know, the, 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 the ethic uh, of our company is very much one of, you know, kind of coming in and working alongside uh, a group of executives that are, that are terrific um, in, 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 in their areas of expertise, right? So whether it's the claims team or whether it's the underwriting team, the engineers, the actuaries, and, 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 and on and on, um, you know, on a good day, we really have a sense of linking arms collectively as a team and then trying to take the business forward. You know, everybody here kind of understands how tough our industry is. And we have a saying, winning isn't normal. Um, and that, that, that keeps us hopefully, you know, kind of not only humble, but also kind of looking at building this business with our eyes open, right? Recognizing um, that so many in our industry and the industry collectively, right, continues to struggle to earn a strong return on capital. And, you know, we're, we're going to have to, you know, kind of work together. We're going to have to bring a long-term focus. Uh, we're going to have to be smart in terms of identifying pockets where we think we can earn a good return and, you know, kind of move um, quickly, uh, you know, as a team to, to, to take good advantage of that. Right. But it's, it's not, kind of an old style 
you know, business, maybe an old style business like the one that I, you know, joined all those years ago. Uh, you know, when I started with Chubb, it's, 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 it's structured, uh, you know, kind of on a very flat um, basis. But, you know, the, the recommendation that I would offer to others is, you know, something that I touched on earlier, right? The value of stepping into opportunities when they're presented. It can be super challenging in our industry, right? This is, a, this is an industry that just is going to continue to reward specialization. You know, authority often flows for a specialist claims leader or a specialist underwriter. And it can be very challenging when you're in that environment to take a step back and say, okay, I'll move from being a product specialist to being someone who you know, builds relationships with our customers and brokers across all product lines, or someone who's an underwriting manager and kind of building his career or her career in a particular product line and says, okay, I'll take a step back and, and be more of a generalist, right? And that can be that can be challenging, right? To not have the answer, to not be the smartest person, you know, or the or the point of authority on a particular risk. Um, but when you do that, you, you know, you have the advantage of gaining some perspective, and you know, on a good day, you can start to take lessons from, you know, one area, one market, one distribution channel, one product line, and apply it into into others. And so, you know, that's just I, I guess that's a small piece of advice. Yeah, that's great advice. And I've got to ask you as well, have you ever faced any sort of difficulties being in the position that you are sort of sitting over um, this region, but not being, you know, a, a native of that region for, for having, you know, an American accent, for example, because, you know, I, I, I look at myself and, you know, on a, obviously on a much smaller scale than, than yourself, but, you know, I, I'm the managing editor over six different regions for our publication. And, you know, that's that's fine for me with a, a British voice in the UK. But, you know, sometimes that can meet with some difficulties in Australia, in America, etc. So for you as an American sitting over the Australasian region, has that ever led to sort of any difficulties or, you know, any bite backs or anything like that? Well, look, maybe, maybe, maybe better for me to refer to, you know, prior roles, you know, w w w without a doubt, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd be naive to think that you, you show up as, a, as an American. Um, and, and, uh, of course it's, it's, it's not all, uh, uh, you know, automatic success. I think, um, you know, one of the nice things is, you know, a lot of the values, maybe I was lucky, right? Growing up in the Midwest, if you tend to bring, you know, kind of humility and a, a fairly humble uh, approach to, to your business, um, then certainly, you know, I'll take Asia first. Um, then certainly I think that that resonates. Um, and uh, I think, you know, whether you're in Australia, uh, where they, you know, kind of have a very well-established tall poppy syndrome, where you, you probably could no commit no bigger sin than to try and spotlight yourself. But you know, also in 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 Asia, right? Uh, there's some, you know, there's some definite uh, steps you can take that would trip you up. Um, you know, I I, I I think Paul that while you know while your your question, you know, the, the answer is no doubt. Yeah, you you can make mistakes. I think. You know, culturally, if people focus on the right things, if they're driven by the right motivation, um, if they care about, you know, kind of moving the team forward collectively, um, if you're not, you know, 
focused on who's getting credit. You know, honestly, there's a lot of great leaders that, you know, come from Australia and head to the U.S. and lead businesses there with great success. Um, there's, you know, I, I, I think that the cultural differences fall away as long as you pay attention to the basics, right? You don't want to show up to Asia and not be aware of the importance of, of, of face. And, you know, you're, you're not going to engage in certain discussions on the floor um, in any culture, right? Um, so you, you have to, you know, show good regard for those basics. But you know what, if, you know, in my experience, if you focus on the right things and, you know, you know you're not, you're not consumed with kind of, uh, you know, moving your career forward or putting the spotlight on yourself, um, people tend to get that right. They tend to see through it. And um, yeah, maybe, you know, generally been pretty fortunate on that front. Yeah, and, and touching on that as well, I, I know that a big part of, of your success has, has been around building a, a very strong corporate culture. So tell us what you think sort of separates perhaps the, the strong cultural values that a firm like uh, Berkshire Hathaway Specialty might have compared to, to compared to others. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think one of the things that uh, was neat for me growing up in the U.S. and being aware of Warren Buffett was just to kind of walk into a new business and it and it felt different and and i kind of worked backwards from there and it it took of course months and you know even even in the second year you're still you're still recognizing and realizing you know what is it that that allows uh this culture to feel different and you know it 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 boils down just like any company to a, to a set of values. But, you know, I, th- I think the most important thing is a willingness to take a long-term view and to really challenge ourselves around how we're showing up. How are we actually mapping the set of values, which every company has on the wall, but are people really willing to stop and say, what does it look like when you demonstrate respect for a customer, what does it look like when you demonstrate respect for the broker who's, who's, you know, especially in the last three or four years have had a ton of challenges and what does it, you know, what does it mean to demonstrate respect for, for a peer? And, you know, to some degree, I think that's sometimes the best test you can apply, right? Is how well is the team looking after each other? And, you know, that's, that's unusual behavior, right? Coming out of the, the U.S. East Coast, you know, it was healthy. And, and certainly you, you, you cared about, I'll say, individuals. Absolutely. But, you know, to, to really see and experience peers that are looking out for each other uh, day in and day out. You know, on a good day, it's certainly we certainly want this business to feel different. And I think that's one of the one of the things that's key, right? So we talk about the fact that our our cornerstone value is respect, but you know, it's it's really to me the willingness to to kind of pause and 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 ask that question, you know, kind of what does that look like? And in that moment, you know, if if myself or others, you know, kind of aren't hitting the marks or aren't, you know, maybe living up to that standard, a willingness to you know, kind of step into those discussions. And so for me, that's the biggest difference, right? Generically, any company, right? Are they willing, you know, to maybe take a little bit less revenue to 
you know, shrink a book of business to not get that deal because they're going to put uh, a, a specific set of values kind of ahead of that transaction. And I think, um, you know, look, hey, every, every company is going to stumble. Every company is going to fall short, no question. But, you know, kind of a willingness to do that, a willingness to pause, a willingness to question, a willingness to step into those discussions, um, you know, I think is, is, is one thing that, you know, we try and get right. So, you know, that's something that I think is important. Yeah, and of course, teamwork, I, I imagine, has, has, has been crucial, especially um, right now, because Australia currently in, in a, well, many regions of Australia are currently in a lockdown situation. So how are you able to um, sort of maintain that teamwork and that strong culture with so many people working remotely, working from home right now, not having that togetherness that perhaps they would have in an office environment? Well, you know, Paul, look, I, I, I got to tell you, you couldn't pick a better example of where I'd be the first one to raise my hand and say, you know, if a, a, any success we've had, and certainly, you know, I'll call it lockdown 2.0 uh, right now, you know, with, with, with Australia being under really strict lockdown, right, like five kilometers from, from home, you know, is the general restriction that a lot of our teammates are under. Um, 100%, you know, this is not a top-down uh, solution. Um, any success we've had has been entirely driven by what I referred to earlier, which is kind of switched on teammates that generally care about how um, other folk on the team are doing, right? As opposed to, uh, you know, uh, you know, a leader cascading, uh, you know, a set of a set of behaviors or a set of actions into the organization. Of course, you know, like everybody else, right, during the first uh, phase, um, you know, we, we tried to put the welfare of our team first. Like everybody else, we were probably surprised at how quickly we could pivot to work from home. We stepped into those discussions and those that new structure, um, you know, kind of very intentionally setting up a different cadence of meetings. Um, a lot of the teams, you know, driving um, steps like, you know, getting together, um, you know, be, beyond just a pure, you know, business agenda, making sure that they took time to just connect as a team, even though it was virtually. Um, and that really, um, I think made a difference, but you know, I, I've, I've got to be crystal clear, right? 99% of this was all driven by the team. And again, it really comes from, um, that set of values that I spoke about. So, you know, that, that, that was one thing that helped. I think, I think, you know, myself, uh, especially this second round of lockdowns here in Australia, um, caught us a little bit off guard, um, you know, probably a willingness to, to say, Hey, you know, folks kind of know the drill. Let's just, you know, tough it out. Surely this will be over in three weeks or four weeks. Uh, and as I sit here, I think we're 10 weeks into the second lockdown. Um, so it's it's really been others on the team that have stepped in and said, hey, you know, we, we've got to realize um, we've got to take some, some steps as a team and make certain we're, you know, just as we did during the first, you know, set of lockdowns, um, you know, being very thoughtful around intentionally setting up an additional set of meetings, additional touch points for our team, making certain it wasn't all business, and frankly, just checking in um, with a team as they manage everything from, 
you know, so many of our, our teammates are, are managing uh, kids that have had to be uh, schooled at home, just like everybody around the world, right? But, you know, that's, that's heavy. And um, making sure we're giving enough flexibility um, to the team so that, uh, you know, they can, they can take care of the unexpected demands um, that these lockdowns bring. So, yeah, probably, probably no, no, uh, no secrets in what I've just said, right? It's, everybody's trying their best. Is, is there anything, though, that you think, um, you know, this is sort of a, a lesson that we've learned in this situation that we're, we're definitely going to carry forward? I mean, is it going to sort of change the way you work? I mean, some companies now are, you know, looking to implement, even in countries which have, have lifted their restrictions, they've perhaps making that switch to, to permanent hybrid work, as it's called, and, and, and things like that. So, I mean, are there any sort of changes that, that you guys are planning to implement on, on the back of all this? Yeah, look, you know, I, I would say to some degree, um, you know, this is uh, unique for Berkshire because we're lucky enough uh, in Australia and New Zealand that we still view ourselves as an early phase company, right? We're, you know, we're probably not uh, a startup anymore. Um, we've, we've just finished our, 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 our sixth year um, since we uh, received our license. Um, but um, we do view ourselves an early phase company. And what does that mean? That means that we are so committed to training a, a, a group of teammates that have come together from probably 40 or 50 different companies here in Australia, New Zealand, and you know, globally, the numbers are even higher. But you are being very intentional in trying to pull this team together and establish uh, common ground in areas that I just spoke about, right? Our values, our culture. How do we think about underwriting? How do we think about portfolio management? You know, some of the uh, ways we think about the business, right? We talk about claims as our product. What does that mean? What does that look like in action? So, Paul, we're in a little bit of a different position. Now, we, uh, you know, have announced that we're going to move to uh, four plus one, uh, so four days in the office, one day work from home. Um, we realize there's a whole bunch of companies, tech companies and people even in our industry that look at the question that you've raised through a different lens. And we totally understand that. But one of the great things has been, right, we, we care so much about our values and culture. And we care about the training that we can provide younger teammates, that are coming up through our business. And we believe there is no better way to mentor them, to train them, than to sit shoulder to shoulder when it is healthy and when it is safe to do so. And, you know, work together as a team. And again, I mentioned one of the, you know, differentiating points that we want to achieve in our business is this sense of collaboration. And, you know, when I joined the company and walked in on a great day, we're all open plan and there's a buzz in the office because the actuary is sitting over at the property underwriter, or the casualty underwriter's desk, and they're sharing a joke and they're sharing their thoughts on how to price an account. And then they have a question and they're getting up and they're reaching out to an engineer or they might walk over to claims and say, have you seen this? And you cannot replicate that synergy when everybody is on a team's call. Uh, 
I can have the best intent in the world to stay connected with our team. And we're, you know, going to approach around 160 teammates at the end of this quarter. Um, I can have the best intent in the world and I just can't do it. But when we're here together in an office environment every day, I can't think of a day that I'm not connecting with the actuarial team. They are an embedded part of our business where I'm walking over to claims, you know, might even be as part of another meeting or discussion that we're having and asking for their input and their opinion. Or, you know, walking, we've got, you know, we happen to be fortunate, you know, we're in the, we're in the mining business. We've got one of the best engineers in the mining segment in Australia. And there, we've got people from our professional indemnity product line that consult with this individual. We've got people from our liability line that consult with this individual. The, you know, the, the property and tech lines underwriters are constantly asking for his input and you just can't replicate that in a remote environment. And so, you know, kind of fully aware that other people are taking a different path, but we are committed. We think that as an early phase company, coming together, reinforcing our values, working together as a team is just too central to who we are. Yeah, no, I think there's a, a lot of people who have, have really sort of missed um, being in the office, being around other people, being around colleagues. Um, I think it's something that, you know, the, we've, we've all struggled with um, during lockdown. I think there's a lot of people chomping at the bit for, for that sort of normality if you want to, to return. Um, but let me ask you about, a, a, I guess we can almost say a, a, another normality if you want in Australia, which is, you know, at the moment you're battling a lockdown, but you know, Australia is, is, is always, it seems, consistently faced with a, a unique set of challenges of its own. We, we're thinking about, for example, the, the bushfires, which were, you know, made global news um, a year or so ago, um, cyclones that hit the country with, with a lot of regularity as well. Um, talk to us a little bit about your experiences in dealing with those events. So I'm imagining coming from, from the United States, you know, I mean, you're used to a lot over there as well from hurricanes and, and, and wildfires and so on. So um, was this something that was very foreign to you coming in or was it something that you thought, okay, yeah, it, this, is, this is something that I'm, I'm used to on my, uh, my home turf, so to speak? Well, just no, nothing. Right? You, can, you can be aware of it as an underwriter, but as someone who spent in the U.S. most of his time in the East Coast, you know, to see the personal impact of the bushfires that swept through, you know, really kind of tail end of 2019, early part of 2020, um, was, there's no way you can be prepared for that, right? And, you know, equally, um, you know, with the cyclone activity or the, the, that we've seen, and, and, you know, as we record this, we've got Ida that's, you know, probably two days ago landed, and I don't know the estimates that I'm seeing, 18, 20 billion US dollar loss. Uh, the, the, the catastrophe, uh, perils and the environment that our underwriters operate in, and that, you know, kind of at a human level, right. That, 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 that we see, um, so challenging. And, you know, the two examples that you picked, uh, especially bushfire, right. Can be really difficult from a insurance standpoint to model and trying to get a high degree of confidence in terms of how you can price and manage that type of risk. So you know, Australia, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of my discussions um, with, you know, our colleagues in Boston, um, like everybody is kind of very aware that when you're 
managing a book in Australia, you're going to have everything thrown at you, right? Whether it's natural perils, we've got earthquakes in New Zealand, cyclones largely, you know, east and west coast of Australia, uh, and then the presence of bushfire, you know, as, as we deal with, with global warming and, you know, the, 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 the impact and trying to work out and assess what does that changing landscape mean to us as we try and help our customers, you know, sh share their risk, uh, transfer their risk. How, you know, how do we price this as good, responsible, long-term partners? Um, we certainly have, you know, kind of uh, just so many challenges. You know, th that said, um, you know, one, one of the nicest things about working for Berkshire Hathaway is Warren Buffett and Ajit Jain know the insurance business arguably better than anybody. And, you know, they provide us with a framework to go into the market and accept risk. They just ask that we follow a set of underwriting disciplines in terms of assessing it, um, understanding the, the different exposures to loss, making certain we're getting a sustainable price, you know, and finally, you know, being prepared to stand down if the market conditions change and you can't get, you know, what we judge to be a, an appropriate price. So, you know, what one of the nice things is whether it's earthquake in New Zealand, where we've been able to make a market um, as, as the industry kind of dealt with some outsized earthquake losses uh, in the last uh, 10 years um, in that market, uh, or whether it's cyclones uh, and even bushfires in Australia, right? Uh, there's a willingness to be consistent and to make a market um, in those perils as long as we can, you know, get what we view to be fair terms. So there's a stability that we can bring um, that I think, you know, on a good day sets us apart. And, you know, I should mention, right, one of the other unique things is we, we, we don't rely on reinsurance. So you're very much eating your own cooking here at Berkshire Hathaway. And, um, you know, that, that puts the pressure on us to be thoughtful in terms of how we structure our deals. But ultimately, it means that we can give you know, long-term commitments. And, you know, even, even in the last quarter, right, we were, we were able to provide a, a, a structure that effectively provided a three-year commitment um, to a, to a large customer with a very heavily cat exposed portfolio. And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of an interesting point of difference. And even our teams in liability, right, have the ability to step in with some of the bushfire losses and some of the challenges that utilities would face. Um, you know, relating to bushfire and the liabilities if they don't, you know, properly manage their power infrastructure. Uh, here again, right, a willingness for our team to try and assess and, you know, provide some long-term stretch aggregate capacity, which, you know, we we hope, you know, on a good day is, is, is a point of difference for, for our company. I mean, not, not every one of our competitors can do that. And, you know, in a small way, we're proud that we can bring that point of difference to our market. Yeah, and Mark, we're running a little bit short of time, but as you um, as you mentioned there about eating your own cooking, I was just wondering what you enjoy doing when you're when you're not at work. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, Paul, uh, I, I I love getting on a road bike and and going out uh, for a for a cycle uh, north of Sydney, where there's some hills and just some beautiful uh, beautiful countryside. But um, I also have to admit that. Um, 
since June uh, with with the lockdown that Sydney's been in. It's been a fair while since I've uh, since I've gotten out there, but I'm looking forward to that um, when when times change. Yeah, no, absolutely. So then you can shake off some of that own cooking, perhaps as well. Um, but as you're heading, as you're, as you're heading into the the hills, Mark, is do you um, are you, you sort of relying purely on 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 leg power, or have you started to cheat a little bit and go no, no, down the electric no, bike route? No, no, no cheating, no cheating. I'm 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 looking askance at 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 folks that are that are on electric bikes and and getting around. But uh, yeah, so it's. Uh, I just jump on a road bike and uh, and and get out to the hills, and uh, it's not always pretty. Uh, my wife uh, reminds me of that um, constantly, but uh, that's okay. Excellent. And uh, Mark, if anybody wishes to to reach out to you on the back of this podcast, how can they get in touch? Sure, uh, Paul. Probably the the best thing is just uh, to email me, and uh, I can either um, you know share that now, or you can you can go ahead and share that. But it's it's mark.lingefelter at bhspecialty.com there you go you've done it done it for me uh mark but yeah it's been a, an absolute pleasure to, to, to have you with us um sincerely hoping that australia is able to to conquer covid soon and get out of of, of lockdown and that you guys can have some uh, normality again um but in the meantime everybody listening if you're stuck at home then what better thing to do than to turn on a podcast while you work uh, and we'll be back with our next edition in one week here on ib talk Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.